Welcome to Mark the Medium with Mark's Unexplained World Podcast Extra. This episode is about the Sodder Children. On one snowy Christmas Eve, back in 1945, a fire broke out and totally destroyed a simple family home in Fayetteville, West Virginia, in the United States of America. At the time, the property was occupied by George Sodder, his wife Jenny, and nine of their ten children. During the fire, George, Jenny, and four of the nine children managed to escape with their lives. To this day, the bodies of the other five children have never been found. The surviving Sodder family believed for the rest of their lives that the five missing children had actually survived the fire. The Sodder family decided to never rebuild the house. Following the fire, instead, they actually levelled the site and transformed it into a memorial garden dedicated to celebrating the lives of their lost children and rebuild their new house on the land that was next to it. This mystery of the missing Sodder family children has so far remained unsolved for more than 70 long years and still remains unsolved today. Greetings, unexplainers. My name is Mark Hughes. I'm a psychic medium, an eclectic wicker, and an Arcturian starseed, who every now and then will take the lid off his flying saucer to make to take a good look at the universe and the unexplained things that happen in it, if you know what I mean. Today, I'm going to tell you the mysterious story about the Sodder children. I will now give you the obligatory disclaimer. This story is a tale that sadly involves children and so may prove upsetting to some. You therefore listen at your own discretion. Also, all opinions and comments made in this podcast are strictly my own, but the facts of the case still remain true. I also apologise if I pronounce anything incorrectly. My English, although it is my first and only language, does need some elocution training at times. But hey, I'm an alien, remember? In fact, we all are, aren't we? Anyway, let's get back to the story. <clears throat> During the 1950s, the Sodder family came to doubt that their children had actually died. So much so that the family put up a billboard at the site of the fire along State Route 16 with pictures of the missing five children, offering a reward of $5,000 for any information that would bring closure to the case. The billboard remaining sorry the billboard remained standing until shortly after Jenny Sodder's death in 1989. 
At the time, the surviving family members were George Sodder, an Italian who was born in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895, who immigrated to the United States when he was only 13 years old. He was a very private man when it came to explaining why he had left his homeland. Eventually, he found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania as a general labourer. After a few years, he took on more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia, where he eventually started his own trucking company, initially hauling fill dirt and coal to other construction companies. Jenny Caprini, no, Jenny Capriani, sorry, my apologies, became George's wife back in 1922. She was a storekeeper's daughter working in Smithers, who had also immigrated to the United States from her childhood home in Italy. The surviving children and ages at the time of the fire were John Sodder, aged 23, Marion Sodder, aged 17, George Sodder, Jr., aged 16, and Sylvia Sodder, aged at only two years old. The last surviving, sorry, the last survivor was a third son named Joe Sodder, aged 21, who was actually away with the US military at the time of the fire. All were plagued for the rest of their lives with the mystery of what really happened to their missing brothers and sisters on that fateful night. The missing children were Morris Sodder, aged 14, Martha Lee Sodder, aged 12, Louis Sodder, aged 10, Je Jenny Irene Sodder, aged 8, and lastly, Betty Dolly Sodder, aged only 6. They kept asking themselves questions like, did the other children die in the fire? Were they murdered? Or were they kidnapped? Just to name a few. It being Christmas Eve, all five of the missing Sodder children, Morris, Martha, Louise, Jenny and Betty, asked if they could stay up late. Marion, 17, the eldest daughter, had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville and she had surprised the three of her younger sisters with new toys she had bought for them as Christmas gifts. Their mother eventually agreed that they could stay up later, which, to be honest, doesn't really surprise me as anybody who's had young children know what a battle it is trying to get them to bed on time, especially on Christmas Eve, or indeed at most times of the year. Am I right or am I right? So, Jenny made the children promise that they would lock their doors properly before going upstairs to bed. Silly question, but why didn't she lock it herself before retiring? Well, there you go. At 12.30am, the telephone rang, waking Jenny, who then went downstairs to answer it. The caller was a woman whose voice Jenny did not recognise, asking for a name of a person she did not know. And with all the added sound of laughter and clinking of glasses in the background, 
Was this a genuine mistake or a prank call? Jenny explained to the caller that she had a wrong number, hung up and went back to bed. Jenny later recalled the woman having a weird laugh. On her way back to bed, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. Two things the children normally attended to before going to bed, when they stayed up later than their parents. Marion, who had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed that the other children who had stayed up later with her had gone back to bed upstairs in the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains and turned out the light, but then as Jenny made her way back up to bed, she noticed that the door was still unlocked and simply assumed that the children had just forgotten to lock it before they went to bed. Children, eh? So she locked the door herself and went upstairs to bed. Half an hour later, at 1am, Jenny was again awakened this time by the sound of an object hitting the house roof with a loud bang, followed by a rolling noise. And no, it wasn't Santa Claus, before you all ask. After hearing nothing further, at 1.30am, she went back to sleep. Another half hour later, at 2am, she woke up again, this time to the smell of smoke. When she got up, she found that the room George used for his office was on fire, with the flames focused on and around the telephone line and fuse box. Jenny woke her husband this time, who in turn woke his elder sons, John and George, while Jenny woke Marion and Sylvia. Once again, the horrified children looked back to see that the house was now fully up in flames. They frantically tried to save their five other children, who they assumed were still trapped inside. The room where the children slept was in the attic, so George, in his bare feet, ran to get the ladders to hopefully make an escape route for them via the bedroom window. However, when George ran to the garage to get the ladders, where they were usually kept, he found that they were missing. Despite knowing that he had definitely put them back after last using them only the day before. Later, during the investigation, they found the ladders, which had been thrown into a nearby ditch, which was certainly not something George would have done. There was also a water barrel that, in theory, could have been used to extinguish the fire, but due to the cold weather, it was frozen solid. An interesting bit of weather trivia for you here. The temperature of Western Virginia during Christmas in 1945 was minus 20 degrees centigrade. So, yeah, that's pretty damn cold. Forgetting the ladders, George thought that it would be a good idea to start one of his trucks, drive it to the side of the house and use this to climb up to the window. 
He tried both of his trucks and, you guessed it, neither would start. Again, they had been both working fine the previous day. George's arm was by now in bad shape from smashing the windows trying to save his children, even though there was now no hope for their survival. Efforts to help, sorry, efforts to find help and rescue the children were thwarted at every single turn. Both George and Jenny tried to call the fire department, but the phone lines were also not working. Marion Sodder, the 17-year-old, then ran to a neighbour's house to call the Fayetteville Fire Department and a driver on a nearby road, who had also seen the flames, called the fire department from a nearby tavern, but they too were both unsuccessful, either because they could not reach the operator or because the phones turned out to be broken as well. Remember people, this was way back before the days of mobile phones, I often wonder how on earth we survived back then. At last, one friendly neighbour decided to drive into town and find the fire chief directly. But although the fire department was only two and a half miles away from the Soda family home, the fire trucks did not arrive on the scene until 8am, a full seven hours after the fire had started. Yes, I'll repeat that a full seven hours after the fire had started. Frustrated and in complete distress, the six Sodder family members who had escaped the fire had no choice other than over the next 45 minutes to watch the house burn down and collapse to the ground with the natural assumption that their brothers and sisters had perished in the blaze. Due to the fire department being low on manpower and because of the war, they relied on individuals calling each other. Chief F.J. Morris said the, one, said the next day, and I quote, that the already slow response was further hampered by my inability to drive a fire truck, meaning that he had to wait until someone was available who could drive the fire truck. When they arrived at the scene, the firefighters, one being Jenny's brother, could do little but look through the ashes that were left in what was the Sodder's basement. The Sodder family had expected to find whole skeletal remains of their five missing children, but by 10am, Fire Chief Morris told them that they had not found any human bones as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another report, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but they chose not to tell the family. It has also been noted by our own modern fire professionals that the search was only cursory at best. Nevertheless, the fire chief believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting that the fire had, in fact, been hot enough to burn their bodies completely, as with cremation. 
following the brief search amongst the rubble, and as it was now Christmas Day, the fire department then postponed any further investigation. As you could imagine, this was another heartbreaking moment for both George and Jenny, as they desperately searched the ruins themselves for any signs of the children's remains. A strange fact, when a maintenance worker arrived at the house after the fire, it was discovered that the phone lines had been deliberately cut rather than burned out as they had originally assumed. And again, strangely enough, in the previous October, a couple of months before the fire, a life insurance salesman had threatened George that his house, and I quote, would go up in up in smoke and his children would be destroyed. George thought the salesman was just angry as he failed to make a sale. However, with the events that followed, it seemed that he'd turned out to be more than accurate. So, was there more to this case than anyone had first thought? After this first short break, in part two, we will look at further details behind the possible causes of the fire. This show is brought to you courtesy of Neil Packer and the Haunted Antiques Paranormal Research Centre. Find them online at www.hauntedresearchcentre.com or at 9211 Regent Street, Hinkley, LE10-1AW. Open on Saturdays from 10am to 4pm for guided tours of the haunted rooms at just £3 per person. Booking is essential at all times, and over 16s only please, unless accompanied by an adult. The haunted rooms are extremely haunted, and paranormal activity could, and has, taken place at any time. Some areas and particular objects or items can be quite scary and unnerving. Membership is available for £25 to qualify for selective offers. And why not download the app, available on both iOS and Android, for only three ninety nine to keep up to date with what is coming up at the centre. An electrician, who had also visited the house prior to the fire, warned George that their faulty fuse box could have caused a severe fire. But the electric company went on to reassure George that the house was perfectly safe and that the electrician who mentioned the fault was more than likely looking to charge privately for doing extra work that wasn't needed. So as a result, 
George never pursued the matter any further. Money was tight enough as it was, with such a large family, and even more so as it was Christmas. Following a subsequent inquest by the fire department, it was discovered that the fire had started in one of the basement rooms due to faulty wiring from some Christmas lights. Ironically, the insurance salesman who had threatened George back in October was one of the jurors during the inquest. The children's deaths were ruled accidental. Nah, sorry, but I'm not buying it. As the family slowly began to rebuild their lives, they started to question all the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, why had the Christmas lights remained on throughout the early stages of the fire, when the power should have gone out first? It was the family themselves who found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire. It was found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet or so away from the property. The failure of George Sodder's trucks to start was also considered. Unfortunately, one of George's son-in-laws told the... Ch Sorry, I'll try that one again. Unfortunately... One of George's son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that George and his sons might have, in their haste to start the trucks, flooded the engines. But both trucks flooding at the same time? It seems an unlikely explanation to me, even if in a panic. Some accidents have been suggested that the wrong number phone call received at the Sodder house that night might also have somehow been connected to the fire. But investigators later located the woman who had made the call and she confirmed that it had been a wrong number on her part. Jenny, like any other parent, was devastated by the loss of her children, so she continued to investigate their disappearance independently. She tried some of her own experiments, such as burning small such as burning small piles of animal bones to see if they could be completely consumed and finding out that none ever were. Also, by comparing the results of a similar house fire that had killed a family of seven, as reported in a local newspaper, and finding out that all of the skeletal remains had been found in that case. She even visited a local crematorium to find out if the fire could have destroyed all the human bones. A recent study by Dr. Ramsey Armory, a researcher at Harvard Medical School, revealed, and I quote, Bones do not exactly melt. It's more of falling apart as they are very solid. For an entire skeleton to be destroyed in a fire, the temperature is required to burn at more than 850 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 454 degrees Celsius, consistently for at least two hours. The Sodder family home was on fire for only 45 minutes, 
as the wooden frame structure burned before them, fueled by the wind speed that night, which meant the property did not stand a chance. Considering how long it took for the house to collapse, there should, in theory, still be the skeletal remains of the five children in and amongst the debris. Yet, these were never recovered from the site. This then led Jenny to believe that her children might actually have been kidnapped. Speaking to a local newspaper, the Raleigh Register, more than 30 years after the fire, she said, and I quote, You can't tell me that my five children could burn up in a little old house like that and something wouldn't be left. No, I'll never believe it. This then led to an even more questions being asked, such as how could five children possibly be kidnapped together from their family home in the middle of the night without waking either the parents or the other siblings? And also surely by now, wouldn't someone have recognised the missing children and and, and alerted the local authorities? Sorry about that. For some time, Jenny herself was considered a suspect of wrongdoing. For a while, there was a rumour going round that somebody had claimed $75,000, that's £61,000 worth of insurance, on the missing children. But, as Jenny soon pointed out, they didn't have any insurance. The police received many reports following the disappearance of the Sutter children. One witness even claimed she served them breakfast the morning after the fire. The woman was working at a hotel in Charleston, Charleston, 50 miles west from the Sodder home. She reported, and I quote, The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. One of the men looked at me in a very hostile manner. He then turned round and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. However, the police were unable to locate the group that the witness had described. On one occasion, George saw a magazine photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City. One looked like his missing daughter, Betty, so he drove all the way to the girls' school where his repeated demands to see the girl himself were refused, which is pretty understandable, really. I mean, would you like a stranger going into your children's school demanding to see them face to face? After this second short break, in part three, we will look at more theories and where the Sodder family are today. Fright Nights was established in 1999 
as the first company in the world to offer overnight ghost hunt experiences to the general public, pioneering paranormal events since the last century. Fright Nights operate at hundreds of the UK's most haunted and exclusive venues. All events have their own team of experienced paranormal investigators, mediums and psychics. They have a VIP members club for regular returning guests, offering loyalty discounts and exclusive invitation-only events. They can also host private events for your family and friends. You can contact them on 07 852 998 628 or email them at office at .co .uk. Or take a look at their website at www.frightnights.co.uk where you can see the many locations they investigate and learn about them and the opportunities they have available. Hundreds of ghost hunters join Fright Nights every month for the most thrilling ghost hunting experiences they'll never forget. If you haven't been on a ghost hunt before, then why not join them to see what it's all about? Why not visit their social media sites for up-to-date information on all the places they visit and to see what's coming up in the future. They look forward to seeing you all soon. Fright Nights Ghost Hunting Events. Remember, only the original will do. There are many online sleuths who believe that George's political beliefs are what motivated the fateful events that happened that night back in 1945. Although the Sodder family were well-respected middle-class people, George had strong anti-Mussolini views and was against the fascist government in his Italian homeland. By frat by Fayetteville, in many other... No, I'll try that one again, sorry. In Fayetteville, many of the other families were also Italian immigrants who disagreed strongly with George's views. Also, George was more than aware that the coal trucking business was under constant pressure from the Sicilian Mafia. And a few weeks before the fire, the Sodder children had complained a few times, in fact, that a strange car was following them as they returned home from school. Many people strongly believed that the disappearance of the Sodder children was connected to the Sicilian Mafia. Although it had come to the end of the official efforts to resolve the case, the Sodder family did not give up hope. They had flyers printed up with pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward, which was soon doubled to $10,000 for any information that would have helped to settle the case for even just one of the children. In 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of where the house used to stand and among Sorry, and another one along the US Route 60 near Anstead with the same information. 
It would in time become a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on US Route 19, known today as State Route 16. Confusing, I know. George followed up as many leads as he could in person, travelling to all the areas the tips were coming from. A woman from St. Louis, Missouri, claimed Martha was being held in a convent. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before. But none of the tips proved to be of any significance. When George heard later that a relative of Jenny's, living in Florida, had children that looked very much like his, the relative had to prove to George that the children he had were his own and not George's, before George was satisfied. Then, in 1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Louis had revealed his identity to her one night after having too much to drink. The woman believed that he and Morris were both living in, living in somewhere in Texas. However, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police were able to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said years later that, and I quote, Those doubts about that denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life until he finally passed away. Louis Sodder was just nine years old when he was last seen alive. Then, 22 years after his disappearance, his mother Jenny received a letter from Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. The letter also came with a picture that is believed to be of Louis, or Lewis. Interesting fact, if you type Louis Sodder, possible picture, into Google search on images, you can see the picture yourself. And in my opinion, when you compare it to the photo of him when he was nine years old, there is a pretty good likeness, but uh, I'll let you decide for yourselves. There was also a message on the back of the photo, which read, Louis Sodder, I love Brother Frankie. Little boys, A90132 or 35. George and Jenny hired a private detective to investigate the photo and to try to locate the sender. Unfortunately, the detective only reached another dead end. George told the Charleston Gazette Mail it was, and I quote, like hitting a brick wall, we just couldn't go any further. Despite being able to confirm if the photo really was Lewis, the parents still had it framed and placed it in pride of place above the fireplace. So strong was their belief. The disappearance of the Sodder children has remained unsolved for decades. Yet, despite this becoming such a high-profile case, the FBI has never been involved. In 1947, George and Jenny made an appeal directly to J. Edgar Hoover, hoping that he would help them. They received the following personal letter from Hoover, which stated, and I quote, 
Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Other FBI agents said that they were willing to help the family once they were granted permission from local authorities. But for some reason, both the Fiatville police and the fire department refused to give the go-ahead. This was yet another devastating blow for the Sodder family. Sadly, George Sodder died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children continued to seek answers to their questions about the fate of their brothers and sisters. All except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives. Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms for their growing family. For the rest of her life, she wore black in the morning, sorry, she wore black in mourning and spent the time tending the garden at the site of the former house. After Jenny's death in 1989, the family finally took the old weathered, worn out billboard down. The surviving Sodder children, joined by their own children, continued to keep the case in the public eye by investigating any new leads that came their way. They, along with the older Fayetteville residents, have theorised that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George and that the children may have been taken by someone in the know who knew about the planned arson attack and told the children they would be safe if they left the house. It was also questioned if they had possibly been taken to Italy. If the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact with them to keep them from any harm. Sylvia Sodder Paxton, the youngest of the surviving Sodder siblings, died in 2021. She was in the house on the night of the fire, which she said was her earliest memory. She also recalled that she was the last child to see the family home. Leave the family home, sorry. She and her father had often stayed up late, talking about what might have happened. She experienced her parents' grief for a long time. She also believed that her siblings survived that night and assisted with all efforts to find them and to publicise the case. Sylvia's daughter said in 2006 that she had promised her grandparents that she wouldn't, wouldn't let the story die and that she would do anything she could to find out what happened. I wonder if she ever got any further with that or... Is this now where the story ends? Thank you all for taking the time out to listen to this episode of Mark's Unexplained World Extra. In our next episode, show number two, we are going to be looking at the Bennington Triangle. 
The Bennington Triangle is where several people went missing over a five-year period between the years 1945 and 1950. Precisely what area is encompassed in this hypothetical mystery triangle is not exactly clear, but the towns surrounding the area began a slow decline towards the late 19th century and have all now become essentially ghost towns. This extra show was written and researched by myself, Mark Hughes, and proofread and edited by Linda Hughes. The actors in this episode were Mark Hughes, Linda Hughes and Denise Pooler. With special thanks to Neil Packer and the staff of the Haunted Antiques Paranormal Research Centre in Hinckley. And a big thanks to everyone for listening. Mark's Unexplained World. Because there's more to the paranormal than meets the third eye. And remember guys to keep it real. Because being real is better than being perfect. This show and all its contents are covered by basic copyright of Mark the Medium. <laughs>